Okay, now we are going to open up the Word, and we are going to talk about our new series today. Um, The new series is called True or False, and I want to start with a question. The series is based off of this kind of a question. If you could ask any question about Christianity, what would it be? If I asked you to answer or to ask any question about Christianity, what would it be? Now, if you're familiar with church or Christianity, you might have one version of a question, but there's many people in this world that are not Christians and do not have a background or understanding of who God is or the Bible or anything, and they may have a completely different question. And you may be sitting in these seats this morning and actually asking one of those questions. That's okay. But what I know is that there are a lot of things about the Christian faith that can be hard to believe. If we really were going to condense what we really believe as the church of Jesus Christ, it can sound a little far-fetched, if I'm being honest with you. It can sound like a bad drug trip sometimes. And being honest with you, like, wow, like really? It is like this, this Bible was written by the God and, you know, he sent his son and he was born as a baby and he raised and he died and, and he rose again and we believe he went to heaven. He's coming back. What? Like this sounds totally insane to somebody that doesn't understand what's going on. Okay. And before any of us, if you were a Christian this morning, made a decision to follow Christ at some point, before you did, it would have sounded insane to you too. And yet we ask questions and we need to ask questions because there are a lot of things that don't make sense and we need to be willing to ask questions and we need to be free to ask questions. And quite honestly, sometimes we avoid the questions, not asking them, but having people ask us the questions because we don't know the answers. You know, as a kid, having because as the answer works if you're three or four. But when you become an adult or a teenager, not even, I mean, for me, I was like 10, 11 year old. Why, 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 why? Everything was why. I wanted to know why, why, why? Probably even younger. Why? I want to know why. How many of us had the why question asked to us at any point in our lives? If you have children, your man better be up. Okay, because why? It happens. I want to know the answer to this. And you tell them, well, because why? Oh, I don't know. Go call Pastor Paul. Go call Pastor Rob. You know, and people don't know the answers to some of these things. And listen, that's reality. We're here to encourage each other and support each other. And you're not going to know the answers to everything. But we need to be. If we're going to be responsible and we're going to take our faith seriously, it has to be okay for people to ask questions about what we believe. It has to be okay for people to ask questions that you don't know the answers to, or maybe I don't know the answers to, but we can find the answers. Super important, Jesus encouraged questions. You know, even Jesus encouraged a lot of questions. He asked a lot of questions himself, and he knew that the greatest spiritual questions are going to be catalysts to help you and I get to know God in a real and personal way. Telling someone the answer is not as powerful as asking a question and helping them through the question get to the answer. Does that make sense? There's a difference. And helping people get to the answer by asking the right question reveals something inside them. And Jesus was all about asking questions. So if you like to ask questions, today is an open day for you to start asking questions about the faith. Now, not this morning in the seats, but we're going to start doing that in this series. And every week we're going to ask some big questions about Christianity that I think, quite honestly, most of us will struggle with answering in some way. 
So hopefully we're going to scratch the surface and answer a little bit. And all we're going to do is be able to scratch the surface on these subjects. We could talk about these one question. We could talk about it the whole month. There's so much to talk about. All we're going to do is give you a high level place to start. And if you're hungry, you can go deeper by understanding a little bit more on your own. So the first question we're going to look at today is, is the Bible just a good book? Is the Bible just a good book? Now, I have heard this question many times over my lifetime. I've heard it from people that are in the church. I definitely hear it from people outside the church. When I worked in corporate and a guy knew I read the Bible and I would bring my Bible on lunch break times. You read the Bible. Yeah. Why? Why? I'm like, well, I like good fictional reading. You know, like I didn't say that to him, you know, but in my sarcasm, you know, that's what I would want to say. But clearly he was asking the question like, why? Like, what is the point of reading that? You know, it's just, it's a whole bunch of words and, and it's, it's, there's like six or 700,000 words in this book. And, and it can be hard to understand by some people's understanding what their opinion is. Why do we read the Bible? Is the Bible just a good book? Well, that's not really the question when people are asking that question. There's a question behind that question. I think what they're really asking are, deeper questions. And I want to take three of those questions this morning and try to identify them and talk about them briefly. The first question I want to ask is, is the Bible the inspired word of God? Because I think that's really what they're asking when they're saying, is it just a good book? Because if it is just a good book, then it can't be the word of God, right? They, They can't be in the same place. It either is or it isn't. So is the Bible just a good book is really asking, is it the word of God? It's not just the word of God. It's the inspired word of God. Okay. What I'm talking about there is, did God actually put these words down on this, on these papers? Are these actually the words of God? or Are they the words of man? And that's why I wrote on the question, the inspired word of God, because there is a difference between something that's inspired versus something that's not. Okay. We believe, I believe as a, as a Christian and a follower of Christ, that these words are revealed to us by God. And we're going to talk about that and what it means. The second question we're going to say is, can we understand it? Let's assume that it is the word of God, the inspired word of God. Can we understand it? There's a lot of stuff in here that quite honestly is, can be really hard to understand if you don't know what you're reading, right? How many times can people look at the word and go, yeah, so-and-so begat, 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 begat. Don't even get me into the book of Numbers. I don't even know what that's about, you know, and I'm getting confused. All that stuff is going on. So is the Bible the word of God? Hey there, can we understand it is the first question. Is the second question, okay? The third question is how can the Bible impact my life? How can the Bible impact my life? Let's assume it's the word of God. Let's assume that we can understand it I think this is the one that matters the most. So what does it have to do with me? Can it change me? And I think that's a really good question. And we're going to talk about all three of them today. So let me first say this. We demonstrate what we believe by what we do. Before we jump into these questions, here are some statistics that may give us some idea of what people believe. Because I really think people get an understanding of what we believe by the way we live. It's one thing to say what we believe. It's another thing to live what we believe. So the way that we live has a lot to do with reinforcing what we believe. So we're going to talk about how we view the Bible based on some statistics that I found. And let me say this before I give you some statistics. A lot of what I'm giving you today, I'm not claiming any original ownership from. 
Okay, I did a lot of research, a lot of digging, uh, reliable research sites. Okay, I didn't just Google what does the Bible say about blah, blah, blah. Okay, because there's a lot of stuff out there that you don't want to go to. Okay, but reliable sources I went to, a lot of stuff to dig into, books, research, online tools, even stuff from last year's Secret Church that was done here through the church on the scripture and the, and the authority of the scripture. Powerful stuff. But I wove my own stuff into it that I felt like was pertinent. So I want to make sure that you know that this isn't something that I claim ownership to for the most part. A lot of it is stuff that was a hybrid and put together. So let's get into some stats. What do we think the world thinks about the Bible? Well, here's a couple stats. According to a 2017 Pew Research poll, 2017 Pew Research poll, 35% of Americans read the Bible at least one time a week. 35% of the, of the Americans read the Bible one time a week. Now, if you're a note taker, I'm going to warn you right now, there's a lot of stuff during this that you may want to take notes for, so get your paper ready. Okay, 36%, because that 35%, one-third of Americans read the Bible at least one time a week. Okay, not too bad. But 36% of Americans actually attend a religious service a week. So it's possible, not saying it is, but it's possible that the one time that they're reading the Bible every week is when they're in church. Okay, so that is possible to say, okay, well, 35% read every week. Yeah, but if they go to church and we assume the church that they're in actually speaks and teaches the word of God in the Bible, they may just be hearing what the guy's talking about or the person's talking about from the stage and they don't read it for the other six days. Okay, so I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Okay, the next thing, 63% of evangelical Protestants, like us, we are evangelical Protestants. We're Protestants in our background and our denomination. We are not a Catholic church. We're a Protestant church. 63% of evangelical Protestants read the Bible one time a week. So that's better, okay? 63% read it one time a week, but 58% of us go to church once a week, okay? So, which is actually, I don't want to say it's great, but it's better to know that you don't have to go to church every single week and more people are reading the Bible as Protestants more than one time a week and they're still not going to church once a week. So that means there are some that are not going to church every week, but they still read the Bible at least one time a week. So if that's you, Hey, you're on the right path, okay? Thumbs up to you. That's good. That's a good direction. Here's where it gets kind of squirrely. 45% of Americans never read the Bible at all. 45%. It's 146 million people in a 320 million person country. Think about that. 45% of Americans never read the Bible at all. 75% of Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. Okay, well, what is a Christian? I don't know whatever the research was that they said. 75% of Christians, self-proclaimed Christians, believe the Bible is the word of God. Wow. Can you believe that? 75% of Christians believe this is the word of God. You know, what do we believe? What do the other 25% believe? I'm not sure. Yet here's the staggering statistic. 42% of those same people think that reading the Bible is an essential part of being a Christian or experiencing spiritual growth. So 75% believe it's the word of God and only 42% think for them to grow spiritually, they really need to be about reading the Bible. 42%. That's crazy, isn't it? 42% of people that call themselves Christians think that by reading this helps you grow spiritually. That's crazy. Now, there's a lot of other details we can get into, but we're going to start there. And then we're going to start asking the questions that I said earlier. So, What do we believe about the Bible? First question, is the Bible the inspired word of God? Is the Bible the inspired word of God? Now, I think most of you would know, you know, like I'm a pastor, so like I do believe that. 
Um, I think that that's important for us to believe. If I don't believe that, I shouldn't be here. Um, I shouldn't be standing here anyway. Um, but is the Bible the inspired word of God? Yeah, what is the word of God? The word of God means divine. It means that these words came from God. But they didn't just come from God. They were inspired from God. They were revealed to man by God. Okay, there's different ways that people look at this, and I just want to be clear about what I mean. There's a difference between revelation and inspiration. Revelation is God connecting with man. That's revelation. Inspiration is man connecting with man. Okay, so what I mean by that is the word of God was revealed to man, okay, and then through men it was penned down on paper, or back then it was animal skins, and that's what they did. So it was written through men who loved God with relationship with God, who they wrote in their own personal preferences with their own languages and their own personalities. Okay, make sense? That's why there's so many different versions of of writing styles in Scripture as well, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But revelation from God, where we became the agents of God, not the instruments of God. There's a difference. An instrument has no power on itself. On its own. These keyboards and these guitars cannot play a note on their own unless someone actually plays them, right? But when you put a player behind them, then they make beautiful music. Same thing applies to this. God did not come down from heaven and, figuratively speaking, put his hand up the back of an individual and just make them talk. He doesn't do that to us today either through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, by the way. He gives you something to say, and then you have to obey and say it. But what he did was he said, okay, I'm going to inspire you, and then you're going to get the word, and you're going to hear the message, and you're going to write this, and your inspiration is going to come out on the paper, but it is the very word of God. Maybe not word for word. There are examples in Scripture that you hear, thus thus saith the Lord. And there are over 3,000 of those that you see throughout the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord. But in this situation, it is being written through inspiration. So what do we believe? We are agents of God. We represent God. And I don't mean we, I mean the writers, the 40 different authors that wrote this, were inspired by God to pen the things down that God asked them to. And as a result of that, were condensed into this book to become divine, the word of God. That's what we believe. That's what I believe. So that by itself might be hard to believe. You might say, okay, I'm not convinced about that at all. So we're going to look at how can we become more convinced that maybe this is the divine inspired word of God. First, I want to look at what the Bible claims about itself. Okay, so what does this book say about itself? Because if the Bible says, hey, this is just an everyday book, self-help book, then we should just go with that. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, it says this. All scripture is inspired by God. Look, see? All scripture is inspired by God. Paul's saying it's all inspired by God, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, you might have a problem with me using this because really what I'm saying is how do we know the Bible is the word of God? The Bible says so. Okay, that that sounds a little, you know, like a merry-go-round, like a circular reference there, right? Say, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? Well, the Bible says the Bible is the word of God, you know, and that works great, again, when you're two years old or three years old. How do you know? Because it says so. That's okay to start, but it can't stay there on its own. And that's where it gets really, really cool. And here's what I mean. I can claim this morning to be the fastest man on the earth. I am. 
I, I'm the fastest man on the earth. Look at you guys just looking like, no way, man. Some of you are sitting in the chairs like, I could whip your butt in a race, Pastor Paul. I know you. I know who I'm looking at, too, is thinking that, too. I know there are people that are thinking that. I could totally beat you in a race. I am the fastest man on the earth. As long as I don't race anybody, you can't prove it. Right? So the words alone don't necessarily mean a whole lot. This is where God's word gets super, super awesome. It's not just something that's proclaimed. It's proven. And we're going to talk about that for a little bit this morning. I want to look at some of the detail of how the Bible was created. What did our forefathers think about the word of God? How did the Jewish scribes of the Old Testament write the word of God? Because the way you view something is evident in the way that you copy it as well. People have questioned whether what we even have today is the actual wording and the actual Bible that was created years ago when all the texts were written. This goes back thousands of years. How do we know that this was actually the word that we had from years ago? Or did it become a game of spiritual telephone? You ever play telephone when you were a kid? Anyone ever play whisper down the lane or telephone, right? So you start with one thing over here that says, you know, Johnny likes Jacob and, and uh, no, that's bad. That says Johnny likes Jamie or whatever. And, and then all the way over here, you know, it's like Jamie likes Evan or whatever. And it's like, how did that happen? You know, something changes in the process. It's like a game of spiritual telephone. People say that. How do we know that this word is actually the real written, written word? First off, I want to look at the way that the Jewish scribes actually looked at this in the Old Testament. This is significant. When Israel was in Israel, the nation, the promised land, they were cast out because they were disobedient. And for 70 years, they lived in captivity under the Babylonian rule. 586 BC, that's what we see, okay? Extra word. You don't need to know that. 70 years later, they came back. 70 years, they came back in to Israel. And there was no law that was being read when they were in captivity, This guy, this priest, comes along with them and writes a book, and his name is Ezra. Okay, he's in the Old Testament, one of my favorite books. And Ezra discovers the law. And he brings the law back to the people of Israel, and he reads the law. And the law resets them and puts them in the right direction. From that time, the law began to be copied again. Say, we need to have copies of this because we can't lose the law for 70 years again. So they start copying it. Here's what the scribes had to follow in order to copy an accurate copy of the Old Testament and the law that they had at that point, not the Old Testament, the law they had at that point, which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They could only use clean animal skins both to write on and even to bind manuscripts, first thing. Second, each column of writing could have no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink that they used had to be black and of a very special recipe only used for this purpose. They had to verbalize each word aloud while they were copying the text. That's what they were required to do. They had to wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the word Jehovah and every time they wrote it. Think about that. Every time they wrote the name of God about the reverence of God, they had to wipe the pen clean wash their entire bodies, write the name of God, and then they would continue. When the copy was finished, there would be a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. The letters, the words, and the paragraphs had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters ever touched each other. The middle paragraph The word and the letter must correspond to those of the original document. 
The documents could only be stored in sacred places like synagogues and no document containing God's word could ever be destroyed. They were stored or buried in special hiding places. These were usually kept in synagogues, sometimes in Jewish cemeteries, sometimes like in the caves of Qumran, like some of you have heard of with the Dead Sea Scrolls that were, that were discovered in the middle of the 1900s. They were stored in caves. They were stored in jars. This is super powerful stuff. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were, that were revealed and they were discovered in the mid-1900s, mid they were written 300 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. And what did they find in there? Well, they found a lot of fragments of the Old Testament, but this is some of the stuff they found. 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the Psalms were in those. Today, the Bible books are in line with the texts that were written over 2,300 years ago because those texts that were written 2,300 years ago, when they compared those fragments and the books that they found back then from the caves of Qumran, it still lines up with the Old Testament word that we read today. How incredible is that? 2,300 years, where today when we want to make a copy of something, we put it on a glass and we hit a button, right? And what did they have to do? Just some of the things that we talked about. What I'm trying to communicate to you, first off, is the level of credibility that the men that copied these texts ascribed to the text. The word of God was holy and set apart and revered. That's what I'm trying to communicate to you today. That's why it's so significant, that it's the same words today that we would have had 2,300 years ago. In the New Testament, the exact same thing happened. When you look at the New Testament and you look at the amount of copies that there are, they're actually today in fragments and full pieces of the New Testament that date all the way back to 130 AD. That was like 100 years after Jesus died, rose again, and left. 130 AD and earlier, 5,000 copies or fragments of the New Testament still, still exist. 10,000 in Latin, 9,300 exist in other languages. And when you do a comparison of the fragments and the New Testament that we have, the words are a match. It's pretty powerful. Why? Because they understand the significance of the word. That's how they ascribed, that's how they ascribed significance to it. Intentionality is one of the proof points to know that we have the word of God and the inspired word of God, that level of intentionality. But there's more to it because the Bible also contains numerous prophecies. This is what I get really excited about. There are numerous prophecies in scripture that were fulfilled outside of the writers having any control over the ability to fulfill it. You say, what are you talking about? The Bible predicted the destruction of empires. The Bible predicted the exile of Israel and the return of Israel. The Bible predicted the 70 years they would be in exile before it ever had any influence by the writers for them to actually come back from exile. The Bible predicted all of that. The Bible has 300 specific prophecies that were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. 300 were fulfilled. Old Testament revealed, New Testament fulfilled with hundreds of years that separate the time that it was written to the time that actually came to pass. The writer could have no possible influence whatsoever on fulfilling it because they were long gone before it ever came to pass. Isn't that incredible? 
Think, what are some of the things we're talking about? There's things about this that go on and on about the fulfillments. We know the time and the place of the Messiah because it was prophesied in the Old Testament 400 years before it ever came to pass. We knew the family line the Messiah would come from because it was prophesied 400 years before it ever came to pass. We know the details of Jesus' death because David wrote about it in Psalm 22 almost 550 years before it ever came to pass. We know about Jesus' burial. We know about his resurrection. We even knew that his name would be Emmanuel, God with us, Yahweh. Hundreds of years before it ever came to pass. How incredible is that? And what we believe about scripture is that if prophecy that is given is not fulfilled, it's no longer valid. Yet you can see over and over and over again the 300 specific occurrences of references in the Old Testament to the Messiah and the Christ and the Anointed One fulfilled over and over and over and over again through the person of Jesus Christ. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Why? Because this is the inspired word of God. This was not written by men. It was written through men. But the author of the book is God. Jesus himself quotes the Bible. You know that? All through the Gospels, Jesus quotes the Bible. He talks about things that, you know, I grew up hearing the stories of, but Jesus speaks about them like they weren't just stories, like they're legitimately things that happen. He talks about how it will be at the end times in Matthew 24, and he says, in the days of Noah, in the days as it was in the days of Noah, like Noah was a real dude. Like Noah actually built a boat. You know, Noah like had the animals come into the boat. Jesus doesn't think, you know, like that fable about Noah. No, it's like Noah was a real guy. Here's the lineage of from Adam that all the way goes through the Noah that makes its way all the way through to Joseph. And this is where Jesus comes from. Noah was a real guy. Jesus talks about him like he was a real guy. He even references the story of Jonah as it was with Jonah as he spent three days in the belly of the fish. Now, I've had many people over the years ask me that question. And I've heard people say, do you really believe as a Christian? that Jonah spent three days, assuming Jonah was real, do you believe that Jonah really spent three days in the belly of a fish? Seriously? Like, sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? Jesus did. Jesus quoted it. So, so Jesus was either a liar. He was either a liar. He was either delusional or he was deceived. And any one of those three would disqualify him from being the son of God. Think about that. He spoke about these things like they were true because they were true. Our New Testament church fathers affirmed that all scripture was God's word. It doesn't matter if you start 100 AD or you go all the way to the 1600s or the 16th century. Justin Martyr, Origen, Augustus. Fast forward to the Reformation where Martin Luther came onto the scene. The word of God. John Calvin, the word of God. Over and over and over again, they testified to the authenticity and the authoritative truth of the Bible that God's word is authoritative truth. Can I tell you, very, very, very difficult to swallow in a culture today where truth is not absolute, but truth is relative. This is the absolute truth of God. Do we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Yes, I absolutely do. And that's some of the reasons. Those are some of the reasons why. Second question, can we understand it? Can we understand it? You know, how many times has someone said up to you, I don't want to read the Bible. Why? I don't get this. This is really confusing. You know, I open it up. There's some confusing stuff in here. 
You know, I mean, I look at some of this stuff and I'm like, so-and-so and, you know, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekelai, son of Menam, became king of Israel and Samaria, blah, 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 blah. What? Why do I care? Why do I care? It doesn't make any sense. What do I need to know about that? You know, remember people like, it makes me laugh. I mean, like when I tell people and people say, hey, what would I encourage someone to do? Read the Bible and you know, one of the first chapters I, or the first books I always encourage people to write to read is the book of John, the Gospel of John of the four Gospels. And I remember someone telling me one time that they had a friend of theirs read the Gospel of Matthew first. And I was like, ooh, that's tough. Why? Because the genealogy is the first chapter of Matthew. You know, Abraham, the father of Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, Judah, Judah, the father of Perez, Zerah, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. The, I don't want to read that. What does that have to do with anything? Why do I care about this? You know, today, like we go on those like online sites to find out what our family tree is. This is what the Bible did. Why does it matter? One of the most common things that we believe as a people is that this is difficult to understand. And can I tell you, it's not. Yes, it is true that there are some subjects in scripture that are very hard for us to understand. Some subjects, some things that really God hasn't made 100% clear. And I think there's a reason for that. Because if it had to be absolutely clear, he made it clear. And there are some things that we're going to wrestle with, and that's okay. I have two books at home written by two different guys, the same publisher, and it says, why I am an Arminian and not a Calvinist. Some of you may not be familiar with the words, but trust me, you don't want to know. Uh, then I have another book that someone says, why I am not, why am I Calvinist and not an Arminian? And they basically just shoot at each other. Who's right? Well, I'm right because of this. Well, I'm right because of that. Well, it's not really clear. And I feel one day we're going to get to heaven and go, God, could you clear this up for me? And he's going to go, seriously? If I wanted it to be clear, I would have made it clear. Guys a whole lot smarter than me have been thinking about it for hundreds of years, and they still don't have an answer. The Bible is clear on specific subjects. Mainly, the main message of the Bible is that it is a unified story. It contains 66 different books, but all, this, all the books support each other into the main purpose of the Bible. And here's the question that it answers. Who is God and how does he redeem his people? Who is God and how does he redeem his people? The Bible, my friends, is not about me. And it's not about you. We are not the, the, the star of the story. It is not about us. We're not supposed to plant ourselves in every hero's story in the Bible to understand that that should be us or that should be. No, no. The story is not about how we get to know about us. The story is how we get to know God. And in the process of knowing God, we begin to understand that the purpose of the word is to redeem, to draw back to himself us, people, God's pursuit I've said it this way differently over the years, but here's my summary statement. It's not who is God and how does he redeem his people. It's God's relentless pursuit for unhindered relationship with people. It is God's pursuit of you, God's pursuit of me. That's what it comes down to. That's what I believe the story is all about. That is the story of redemption, and it is very clear through Scripture. All you have to do is walk through our church to our kids' area, and you can see that we've been telling that story through our murals, that God created everything in Genesis perfectly, the way it was supposed to be, relationship with him, relationship with us, and they were, they were walking around with God unhindered in their relationship because that's the way you and I were created to be, in relationship with God. And then the serpent had to come in and do what he did, and 
Eve ate of the fruit and Adam ate of the fruit and said, our way is more important than God's way. And their eyes were open and brokenness comes into the world. And God doesn't mess it up. We mess it up. It's hard in a world where we don't want to take personal responsibility for ourselves many times because it's everyone else's fault. But the Bible shows us that we messed it up, that we broke the promise. We broke the relationship. We severed the covenant between him and us. And then the promise is that God's going to restore it. That's the story of redemption, that he's going to bring it all back together and put the whole thing back together. So he gives us the law through Israel. And the law just tells us and reminds us that it doesn't matter as good as you or I am. We will never be able to fulfill the law and to hold the law without God's help. We break the law over and over, right? We have any lawbreakers in this room this morning? Any lawbreakers? My hand's up. The rest of you are lying, so you're breaking the law right now. You know, We break the law. We break the law. We're incapable of keeping the law ourselves. God says there needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a sacrifice. And we watch hundreds of years go by until the nation's finally crying out to say there needs to be an anointed one. There needs to be a savior to bring universal peace. The forgiveness of sins comes at a cost. And Jesus shows up in the story of grace. It's beautiful. And he's a sinless sacrifice. And he hangs on that cross, taking every one of your sins, past, present, and future. And he hangs on that cross, asking the Lord to forgive us because we don't even know what we're doing. And he bears the weight as the father forsakes him, says it's finished, and the temple veil is torn in two. That was so significant because that Jewish veil separated the Holy of Holies from the inner court. And the Holy of Holies was the presence of God and the only person that could go behind that veil every time, once a year, was the high priest. And when that temple veil was torn and the curtain was torn, it was like saying, the doors are wide open, kids. Come hang out with daddy. So cool that that's what God did through his son on the cross. Isn't that incredible? That's the story of grace. And the message of grace isn't that you got good enough. The message was you could never be good enough. Look, thousands of years of my boneheaded Israelites messing up. We need Jesus. I need Jesus today because I'm still an Israelite in the way that I think sometimes. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Beautiful story. Jesus goes back to heaven, promises the counselor, the Holy Spirit, and the presence of the Holy Spirit fills the heart of all who believe. Every one of us today that have trusted in Christ don't have a promise of the presence of God. We have the presence of God dwelling in us. And he's a deposit We don't have a little bit of Holy Spirit. We have all the Holy Spirit, but he's a deposit of the greater thing that's going to come. And what that is, is when Jesus comes back, and he is going to come back, we're going to be dwelling with God forever, Revelation 21. And there's going to be no sun, no moon, no night. We don't even need a sun because the presence of God, the glory of God will fill everything, and we will be restored in full relationship. That is the story of redemption. The Bible story is not unclear. Does it make sense? Hear that story? Okay, well, what does that have to do with all of this? What does that have to do? You know, I mean, do I have to read this anymore? You just told me the whole story. This is where it gets kind of hairy sometimes. That we need to know how this fits together to tell that story. Because though there are 66 different books, there are all different literary forms of writing in this scripture that still tell that story. There's narrative that tells a story. The law, poetry, hymns, Prayers, songs, wisdom literature on principles on how to live, prophecies, the gospels about Jesus, the parables that Jesus told, the letters that Apostle Paul and John and Peter, they all wrote, apocalyptic literature that are forth-telling and future-telling about what's going to happen. 
And if we're not careful, if we don't understand how all of those writings come into this book, we take something that was a narrative or a story and we try to apply that understanding or interpretation to something that was maybe apocalyptic. So for example, you go to the book of Revelation and you see example after example of you know, these bowls that are being poured out and these swords that are coming out and people riding around on horses and giant locusts and all these things. And, and there, there are people in this world that believe that the day is coming that all of those things are going to happen and here comes the horse and here comes the flaming sword and all that stuff. And listen, I'm not God. I don't know what he's going to do and what he isn't going to do. But what I do know is that when John actually wrote that, over and over again, you see him say, what I saw was like, what I heard was like. And what he was doing was he was making a comparison to say, the point of this isn't for you to draw a picture to find exactly the way it's going to happen. The point of you is an infinite God with all understanding was trying to communicate to finite people what his return will be like. That's what he was trying to do. So he didn't say he heard a rushing, a rushing, or, or the sound. He didn't hear um, uh, the, the praise of people. He heard what sounded like this. And everything was imagery. Everything was imagery. And when we misinterpret what Scripture says, you know, I've had people say many, many times, you know, well, in heaven, we're going to be walking on streets of gold because the Bible says we're going to walk on streets of gold. I don't think that's going to happen. And you know what? If I'm wrong and I walk on gold, I'll be like, okay. But gold is a really soft metal. You know, and like eventually like you can step on it and it'll dent. What was he trying to say? This is what I think he was trying to say. John, on earth, the most valuable substance you could ever, ever have is gold. They traded it as a commodity, right? That was their money. That was their economic source. It was the most valuable thing you could possess. When the kings would come and take over nations, what would they do? They would take everybody's what? Gold. In heaven, it's dirt. We're going to walk on streets of gold? I don't know. God can make the gold stronger, but I don't think that's the point. We take things out of context, and it can become dangerous. I did this, and I think we can do this in the church. Maybe some of you do. I've done this many years ago, and I still do it sometimes. When I was in high school, man, my life verse was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who can give you strength. Did you know that? You can do all things through Christ who can give you strength. It was my quote on my yearbook from my senior year. They almost edited it out because it was biblical. I can do all things. Yeah, one kid wrote, I'd rather serve in hell than rule in heaven, and that was okay, but they almost took mine out. I can do all things. Well, I don't know if we want to put that. I'm like, are you for real? So anyway, Philippians 4.13, that's what they put on there. I can do all things through Christ. And I would go through, I remember I was in honors English my senior year. And my teacher would teach at New York University, and then she would also teach at the high school. And she told me, she's like, you're not smart enough to be in honors English. You shouldn't be in this class. And I was like, oh, I'm going to show you, lady. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I didn't say this to her. I was just like, I can do this, right? So quizzes, tests that come. I can do all things through Christ who give me strength. you got to memorize Hamlet's soliloquy. And to be or not to be, that is the question. Da, 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 da. I'm going to memorize that. And it took me like two hours to memorize this. And I'm going to do all that. I get an A in that, all these things. Then came the research paper. I had three months to write a research paper. I can do all things through Christ who gave me strength. I do my stuff. I can do all things through Christ who gave me strength. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I got it back and I failed it. Because I never read the book. <laughs> True. I read the cliff notes. I asked people that read the book what it was about. <laughs> and I made up everything else. I'm not even going to tell you what the book is because you judge me for it. Maybe you judge me now. <laughs> How ridiculous for me to grab a passage from Philippians 4. 
I can do all things through Christ. Put, I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to show this lady. And God's like, you got to read the book. But your word says, I can do all things through Christ. You got to read the book. But your word says, Paul is writing to a Philippian church in chapter 4 of Philippians about being content in all situations. And I'm taking the message of learn to be content whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. Learn to be content whether you're walking in freedom or you're being persecuted. I can be all things through Christ. I can be content in all circumstances. I can be all things. And everything I need to do, God will show me how to do. And I will be content. Because God will help me do all things. And I took that and I twisted it to say, well, I can write a great paper because God's going to give me the ability to write a great paper. And God's like, you didn't even read the book, bro. I'm not giving you that. (laughs) We laugh at the ridiculous nature of that story. But don't we do that sometimes? Yes, we do. We do. Many times we can grab a hold of this scripture. God says, And we do this. This person, God says, God? And God's like, that wasn't my intent. And we actually are violating the third commandment. Don't take the Lord's name, the name of the Lord your God in vain, which is really saying, don't misuse my name. Don't associate my name with something it was never intended to be associated with. That's what he's saying. How do we not do this? We need to know what this means. And we need to be willing to take the time to study it and to research it and to understand what God's word says so that we don't. And Paul talks about this. If you are clear in understanding the word of God and you're a student of the word of God, you will save yourself and you'll save who? Your hearers. It's so important. There are people that have walked away from the church Because people have misused scripture and claimed that God has been someone or is someone when he never intended his name to be associated with that. And then people get hardened and people get discouraged. I've heard people say horrible things to other people about why they've lost family members and loved ones. I've heard people say to other people that they're not physically healed because they don't know how to pray. Or they're not physically healed because there's sin in their life. That they lost their son or their daughter and they died because there must be sin in the parent's life. I've heard ridiculously stupid things that people say that has nothing to do with this word. It is not biblical. And you better know what you're going to say if you're going to say something to someone that is that direct. It's so important for us to know the truth of God's word. Do we know that God heals? Yes, he heals. Have we seen people healed in miraculous ways across our church? Yes, we have. Whether in this area, in Lansdale, and other areas of the world, yes. Does God always do it the same exact way? No, he does not. And if we don't understand what this word is saying, if we don't become an expert in understanding what his word says, we're going to disappoint ourselves, disappoint those that we're teaching possibly even cause our kids and the generations to come after us to be misguided. You know, we live in a world where the careers that we are in encourage us to have ongoing education, to be trained. There are many jobs that people do that require a lot of training, right? A lot of education and a lot of training are required in this world. There are some jobs that I would never let someone come near me if they don't have any education, right? Well, doctor, how long have you been practicing? Oh, today's my first venture. So, <laughs> see you later. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. 
You don't know how to fix that car? Well, I watched it on TV once or twice. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. We wouldn't go to people that are disqualified or unqualified, right? Because we need to be trained. We need to be excellent at the things that we do. And we will invest time in learning our skill, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, whether you're a medical person, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're parenting. My goodness, training to learn how to become a good parent. Just because you know how to have a baby doesn't mean that you know how to be a parent. You know, it doesn't come with instructions, Babies don't come with instructions, and there are a lot of people that know how to have them, but they never go to school to learn how to raise them. And we do all of those things, and when we're intentional with those things, we become experts in our field of study. Can I tell you today, God has challenged us and is challenging us to become experts in the greatest field of study, his word. Are you students of his word? Do you desire to eat this word, to feast on it so that you really do understand there are so many tools that are available today to teach us how to do this. And every one of us has the opportunity to understand it. And here's why. Jesus said this in Luke 24, 45. He said, then he helped them understand the scriptures. Then he helped them understand the scriptures. What's happening? After the resurrection, These guys walk with him for three years. They still didn't have an understanding of what was going on. Jesus opened their eyes so that everything that was revealed to them before became understood to them now. The presence of God opened their eyes so that they could see. And that was through the power of a mighty God. When Jesus left, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to be your counselor. He's going to be your mentor. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2 about understanding. Look, he says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them what? Foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. What is he saying there? It's impossible for you to understand the things of God without the Spirit's intervention. It's impossible for me to understand the things of God without the Spirit's intervention. I can't even say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit revealing it to me. That's what the Word says. So can we understand the Word? Yeah, you can. I can. Because this power... The Spirit of God dwells in the hearts of all who believe. And during that time, as you open the Word, as you take the additional tools, as you build relationship with others that can teach you how to study the Word and to understand what God's Word is saying about these different things, the Spirit illuminates, He reveals, and He plants it so deep in your heart that it will absolutely transform you. So if we assume we can understand it, the last question this morning is simply, how can the Bible impact my life? How can the Bible impact my life? Can it impact your life? It can. If the spirit of the living God dwells in your heart today, guys, which he does for all who believe, he is in there for a purpose to transform your life. And he is the author of this book, my mother-in-law started, reading, started writing books a few years back after retirement as a hobby. And she's done a good job with it. She wrote two books at this point. And I remember the first book that I read, there were questions that I didn't necessarily understand about the book that she read. And there were some wrote, and I, and I had some questions about it. So what do you do when you know the author and you read the book and you have a question? You ask the author. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will dwell in each one of us. The presence of God, the author of his word. If you're looking for clarity about this word, you only need to look to, your, to the spirit that dwells in you. 
and he will give you revelation on what that means. And he gives you tools and he gives you understanding and he gives you people around you to make things clear. Because if you're hungry to understand this word, he will be faithful to reveal it to you. How can the Bible impact my life? Three brief things I want you to hear as we get ready to close this morning. First, I want you to hear he wants to give you a new heart, a new mind, and a new will. This word can give you a new heart, a new mind, and a new will. What does the new heart look like? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. Look at that. The past is forgotten and everything is new. Anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. You know what I love about that? It reminds me of the reset button that many of us would like to press when we look back at things we've done, said, or lived. How many of us have a reset button that if we could just go back and get to an instance and go, reboot, I want to start over and I want everything from that point on to look different again. Can I tell you, if that's where you are, God gives us a reboot button in Jesus Christ. He gives you a new heart. That you're not the old junk with a little bit of a polish on it. No, the Bible says if anyone become in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You don't walk with condemnation from your past. Your past doesn't even exist to God anymore. So don't let it ride in your heart anymore either. Your past is gone. He wants to give us a new mind. Romans 12, 2. Don't be like the people of this world. He says, but let God change the way you think. Then you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to him. Instead of thinking and talking and believing like the old person, we can receive a new mind. And it's the mind of Christ, Paul says, that God will change the way you think. And he uses this word. This is so important because so many times the things that we think are things that we've learned from the circumstances around us. You're only as valuable as what you can give someone. You're not a human or you're not a person. You're an object. Your value is determined by your body measurements. You were made to be used. You'll never be able to change what you've wrestled with. The old is always going to be there. These are the things that we believe that the culture tells us. And Paul says in Romans... Don't be like the people of the world. Don't think like they think. This word is going to plant new things in your mind. And it's going to change the way you think. And when you can change the way you think, it will change the way you live. And when you change the way you live, it will change your entire life. I believe and I know that there are people in this church today that have allowed this word word, to change the way they think. And by doing that, it's been changing the way they live. And by doing that, it's affected their spouses or their children or their grandchildren. Can I tell you, generations will be changed if you let the word of God change the way you think. And everything can be different. Yeah, but what about this? And I struggle with this. What is truth? You know what I think is the most beautiful thing? That we get to the place and we stop questioning whether this is true or not. And we go, God's word says, do this. God's word says, live this way. God's word says, I look at Ephesians 5 over and over again. That says, mutually submit yourself to one another. Wives, wives, submit to your husbands. Submission means respect your husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know, if we took that truth alone and applied that to our marriages, I think half the marriage counselors would go out of business in this world. I really think that that would happen. What if we just died to ourselves? Well, I'll change when she changes and I'll change when he changes. Nonsense. Mutually mutually submit. God doesn't call us to submit when somebody else does. He calls us to be loving and caring with our hands open. And if both people are willing to do that, they're walking to the cross. And you can't get further away from each other if you're both walking to the cross. The cross brings us to the same place. And eventually you look at each other and go, hey, what are you doing here? what are you doing here? Well, we're both trying to follow Jesus. Why don't we just walk together? Let your mind be renewed this morning. In any area of your life, nothing's hopeless. Let him renew. And the last thing is the new will. The new will, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what is he saying there? Every one of us wants to live with purpose. Every one of us, I believe, wants value in their lives. No one wants to live this life to say, well, it was a good run, but I didn't make an impact on anybody and my life was meaningless. Everyone wants to know that something they did mattered to someone. What is the purpose that God has created you to do? You only find out by remaining in him, staying close to Jesus, letting him fill you. That's what it is, the illustration of the branch and the grafting. Stay connected to the vine. And then you don't really have to ask the question, am I in the center of God's will? The only time you have to ask that is when you're no longer walking with him. If we spend our lives walking in God's will, we don't have to ask what God's next step is many times. He just shows us. Keep walking and trust me. You're walking close to me, right? You're staying close to me. You're devouring this word. You're humbling yourself. You're show, I'm showing you the path one day at a time. Stop wondering what the big picture is. Just enjoy the journey. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, I can do nothing. And sometimes God leads us down exciting paths. And sometimes our paths are dark. But each time if we stay close to him, we always are assured of his will being fulfilled. If I can just condense this and just wrap it up at the end, I just want you to hear this, please. If you let it, the Bible is guaranteed to change your life. It is guaranteed to change your life. If you're here this morning and you don't read this word, I'm going to challenge you. Read the word. I'm going to challenge you to make a decision to read this word. An organization called Back to the Bible Ministries conducted a four-year study about people who read the Bible. And this is the data they came up with. Super powerful. 57% of people that read the Bible at least four times a week were less likely to give into temptation. Say, what does that mean? People that read the Bible four times a week or more, 57% are less likely to get drunk 68% less likely to have sex outside of marriage. 61% less likely to view pornography. 74% less likely to gamble, and the list goes on. Those aren't the only things. What I'm trying to say here is that this word has the ability to change you if you read it. If you're willing to take time to make this a priority and let God plan it in your heart, it will change who you are. Would you stand with me please today? So the worship team is just going to take a few moments and we're going to close with this 
with this chorus of the Holy Spirit. It begins with our hands open, like I said during the worship time. The posturing of our hands should be open to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. And if you're here this morning and you're asking for, for revelation from God, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to begin a journey where you can experience more of God through his word.